Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, host and creator of the Right Fit Method, the key to professional and personal success. Now, let's join Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. Do you remember reading Grace's and Helen's stories in my book, Win Without Competing? If you read Win, you would not forget either of these storyteller stars. I am delighted that both of them are joining me today. Shortly, you will meet them. There are nine storytellers in Win, all propelled by passion. All their stories are memorable for different reasons. Storyteller Jason Marino holds a special place in many readers' hearts. He lived the right fit method because it was his way of achieving professional and personal success. Jason inspired us to set high standards. His motto, expect success, is the hallmark of his passionate pursuit of excellence. I am dedicating today's show to entrepreneur Jason Marino, the founder of Eureka Review, who passed away at age 34 a few months after Win Without Competing was published. My first storyteller, Grace Tiscarino Sato, appeared in Chapter 2, Your Core Identity, Know Thyself Now. Grace gave us a glimpse of the journey from architecture to military aviation to global marketing and communications. But she did a lot more than that for the readers. Throughout the changing of Grace's core identities, she continued to focus on her clear and focused image of her right fit. When she determined that the current fit was no longer right, she made a change that matched her right fit standard. She left military aviation to follow her passion for global marketing and communications. She turned down a handsome offer in supply chain management and others because they, too, were the wrong fit. Her unwavering commitment 
to identifying and selecting the right fit has been the hallmark of her career success. Grace's professional career is based on her solid, insightful, and deep understanding of who she is and what she wants. Underlying her logical approach is a deep passion which motivates her career choices and empowers her to succeed and soar to new heights. It is absolutely essential for you to determine, as Grace did, what turns you on. To truly achieve success, you need to follow your passion. To be creative, you need to feel passion. If you work only to achieve money and have no passion, you will feel empty and unfulfilled. It is my pleasure to introduce Grace Tiscarino Sato. Welcome, Grace, to Win Without Competing. Thank you so much, Arlene. It's great to be back. We met at a meeting of the National Society of Hispanic MBAs. I was invited to speak, and you were asked to write an article about me. The results, you wrote the article and became the first storyteller in my book. I don't know if you know that, Grace. I I remember that you told me that I was the first. It was my pleasure. Thanks for setting the stage for the other storytellers. More than a year ago, I received a voicemail from you in which you shared some unexpected news about your position at Siemens. I called you back to find out more. What happened, Grace? Yeah, the call was shortly after the business unit I was working at was sold to a private equity firm. And as things happen when those kinds of transactions occur, uh, there was a global wave of layoffs that affected about 85% of the company, including me. How did you feel? Well, there's always a little bit of surprise, even though you see it coming because you know what's happening and the CEO has been let go, et cetera. So definitely a bit of surprise um, initially. They notified you you by phone, correct? That's correct. So I got the phone call, and just after that phone call, I reached up – on a shelf where I have a binder called My Ideas, Ambitions, and Dreams. I have this binder. I picked up this binder, and I decided to go for a hike in the woods to think. So I took my binder, and I sat in a place where six paths converge into the center point, and I just sat there, and I flipped through my binder. And it was definitely a symbolic act, Arlene. I was telling myself, that I was now free to choose any of these paths that I wanted. So I very intentionally went there. And continuing to to do what I was doing was, of course, just one option. But there were other things in that binder as well that I thought would be worth focusing on. Now, was it at that time that you decided not to pursue finding high-level marketing position, which is what you had at Siemens. Mm-hmm. Instead, you chose the entrepreneurial road. 
Yes, I did. So in this binder, um, one of the things that I knew because I had been surrounding myself with entrepreneurs is I knew that I would always become one. See, I was already getting paid to write feature articles for trade magazines under my own name, and I was getting paid to speak at business and educational conferences on weekends. Because, see, Arlene, I believe very much in creating multiple revenue streams because streams sometimes have a tendency to dry up. So the way I was doing that extra writing and entrepreneurial activities while working is I always declared one night a week my writing night, and my husband would come home from work and take over with the dinner and hanging out with the children and I would head to a local cafe to write the article, presentation, whatever it was that I was creating next. So I had already built in time into my life to stay creative and do my own thing outside of whatever I was already doing. And the reason is it's always been very important to me to build something of my own, to build my own legacy. How did you know that you have what it takes to become an entrepreneur? As you may remember in Win Without Competing, I talk about the characteristics of the successful entrepreneur. Being able to see ideas and identify opportunities and needs has always been something I've done. Being able to self-start and organize these various ideas that happen I saw somebody describe them as idea butterflies. Um, we we tend to always be thinking of new things, and um, we need to actually structure those ideas in some way so that we can act on them in some sort of order. So just the fact that I'd always had that continuous generation of ideas, um, that for me was very telling. But what's interesting, Grace, If it was all a question of ideas, if you look around, there are lots and lots of people who have quality ideas but cannot manage to take those ideas and create a successful entity. So ideas in and of themselves are a start but -hmm. not the whole story. So, for example... A successful entrepreneur needs to take charge and manage the process and see a project through from beginning to end. A successful entrepreneur needs to be a risk taker. How do you feel about risk taking? I love it, actually. Um, I, I have a mantra, and it's organize, prioritize, and execute. And... Ideas, yes. Ideas without execution remain just that. But too many ideas also leave you feeling kind of paralyzed and non-focused. So I always believe in those three words, and I've used those three words together for a long, long time. You organize your ideas, you prioritize your ideas, and then you execute. You pick something and execute and stay focused. So the way you do that is you borrow the brains of other smart people that have already done this. And that is something that I will say has been instrumental is surrounding myself with smart, driven, successful entrepreneurs. A lot of them women. Interesting. That's been key. Mm-hmm. Just to, to see how it's done and to be able to ask those questions and ask, am I taking too much of a risk? 
is this manageable? Would you do this? And then hear back that, no, that's great. I would do that. Or, you know, have you thought about doing this? And just having those people to rely on to, like I said, borrow their brains, that's hugely important to have the confidence to go forward. Going a bit further, you created a marketing and communications firm, <clears throat> excuse me, and named it Gracefully Global Group. Why yes. Gracefully Global? So this name, Gracefully Global, it comes from my 18 years of working globally, um, first in the military and then next working for Siemens, the, the German communications company headquartered in Munich. So I have been blessed to be able to travel and live in four different continents throughout my professional career. Coupled with my graduate degree in international management at um, college in Spokane, Washington, Whitworth College, where half of my cohort was students outside the U.S., I've been very blessed to have ample opportunity to work as a global citizen. So that global component of what I do is very important. Yet I know that many businesses expanding, you know, from small to large or entering different market segments, addressing different ethnic markets or even entering different global markets, many times those businesses are not equipped with the skills in-house to do so gracefully. And strange Sometimes irreversible mistakes are made. So this name means that as a business grows and a personal corporate brand is growing, and if you want to communicate gracefully and perhaps globally, you can call on Gracefully Global, and we can help craft the messaging and the marketing and the publicity that will be most effective. So it's really a way to to encapsulate the direct global experience that I've had and be able to put that together in a name that means that. Going further, I wanted to touch upon the managing of the process. Mm-hmm. Talk about what you do to manage the process of an effort so that the listener can understand step-by-step step what's required to organize yourself. As in on a daily basis? On a daily basis, um, in terms of how you might structure your day, for example. Okay. Um, yes. That would have to do with time management. Yes. So how would you walk us through a typical day so we can kind of walk in your shoes, so to speak. Okay. Yes, this is the challenge. This is the biggest challenge, I believe, one one of the two biggest challenges. So I wake up at 5.30 in the morning most days, and the first thing I'll do is I will finish whatever tasks were urgent yesterday, but I didn't finish them. <laughs> so wake up early, get something done that was bothering me yesterday, get that off my mind. By 6.30 in the morning, I am cleaning up my kitchen if it didn't get done the night before, making breakfast for my girls, and then I get them to school by 8 in the morning. And my husband then, either he gets picked up or I take him to the train. And by about 8.15, 8.30 in the morning, I am starting my day. Now, here's an important part of my structure. Monday is my planning morning. 
and that's where the organize, prioritize, and execute comes into play. Um, I cannot really start my week if I have 77 things I need to do, but there's no order and no priority. So I organize myself, my calendar, and look ahead for the whole week. Um, Friday, I call it my thanking day. So that's I learned that one from Jeff Bezos, the, uh, the founder of Amazon.com. On Friday, I take time to thank people for different things that have been done during the week. So those are kind of like the bookends of the day. And then, of course, Friday afternoon, I have preschool duty, so I'm doing that. In the middle, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, it looks like this after the school drop-off. I start first by communicating with East Coast folks and returning voice messages and emails, but I limit that activity to about 30 minutes in the morning because I have to get back to the plan that I made for my day. And that's very important because I don't let others dictate how I spend my time. I know too many people who can just watch their whole morning disappear doing email. And I don't do that. I am very disciplined. I 30 minutes of communication, East Coast usually, to start. If I'm creating something, if I'm in the middle of a presentation that I'm going to give or if I'm writing or something else, I will turn off my mobile phone. I will close my email, close down instant messaging clients, the whole thing. I go heads down and I create excellent work. And this is not a time for multitasking. I love that whole idea of multitasking and they think that working mothers are multitasking. Well, I think multitasking is a way to do many things poorly. So I believe in compartmentalizing. So I put everything that I'm not doing in its own little box, giving me complete focus. And that's my morning. And then I'll take a break for lunch and exercise, you know, very important. And that might include a lunch date with my husband if he's working from home. So that's my morning. How's that for structure? It sounds very orderly. The question is, how do you really do exactly what you just said, would you say? In other words, are you that disciplined? That's what I'm trying to get at. Because a lot of people have a good plan, but they can't always execute it, Grace. Well, And you certainly can't execute it if you allow everybody to interrupt you and if you allow all the incoming communication to take priority over your plan. So that's that very important step where I, I know that um, the value that I'm bringing to a process or um, a program or an event, that value is coming from what I'm creating. It's not coming from how many emails I can respond to. So I, I have great clarity on that point. So well, I myself, with, excuse me for a second, Grace, I myself, with respect to email, I respond at night. So I don't even look at email during the day. Fabulous. Yeah, that's that's how I handle email. Yeah. Great. Yeah, no, it's it's something that's really becomes a great distractor. Mm-hmm. And given that I have a search firm, I have volume, and it's tremendous volume. I could be sitting all day long with this email. Right, right. So you may so, want to think about that. Mm-hmm. So there is some variability. You know, if something comes in and there's a sudden opportunity for um to, to write something or to, to submit an article for publication or, you know, some, something like that. You know, of course, I'll, I have flexibility, but that's the structure to answer your question. That's what I try to stick to. And in the afternoons, I'll switch gears and I'll do, you know, pitch some phone pitching for speaking gigs or update a blog or website, social media, some external communication stuff. And then 
return some phone calls and messages. And then by 3.30, I'm shifting over to mom mode because by then, my nanny has picked up the kids and is bringing them home from school. So different um, dynamic in the afternoon. Greet the kids when they come home, have a snack. Back in the office by 4 o'clock, wrap up some small tasks that don't require total concentration. Um, And then by 5 o'clock, I am done with my office stuff and I'm heading down to do Braille with my six-year-old. Um, or, you know, then get dinner started by 5.30. So that's really, you know, the Monday through Thursday type routine, that's pretty much it. And um, the challenge, yeah, it's to stick to the plan. And there's a lot of people who want you to do stuff for them that want to make you deviate from your plan, but that's up to me to manage. Like you said, manage well, the process, and that is yeah, my well, process to manage. Well, well, that's right. I mean, that's what managing the process means, to take charge so that you do things that are right for you. Mm-hmm. Okay, going exactly. further. You have a knack for seeing needs as opportunities and hitting home runs. You became an advocate for the Latino business community. Why do they need you? That's a great question. I would say short answer is the Latino business community needs me because I'm very good at putting the spotlight on stories of success that have previously been ignored and can no longer be ignored. It's just what I do. Um, For example, the the book that I've written is loaded with business success stories of environmental entrepreneurs. And... Maybe we'll talk about this more later, but the reason this is important is I believe very strongly in my heart that these business success stories from the Latino community, um, they just, they're ignored in the mainstream. And I believe they cannot be ignored for a couple of compelling reasons. And one of the reasons is there's millions of Latino students who need to see these examples of successful, educated business people uh, who are making a difference to use resources better as they move towards a more eco-friendly, sustainable economy. They're entrepreneurs, they're successful, and our students need to see them. So hiding these kind of success stories from the Latino community, hiding these stories from the mainstream, is damaging because it keeps the tired stereotypes afloat. But I believe also that hiding the success stories from the Latino community, hiding them from the youth, that's even more damaging. And especially so in communities where kids have very few positive educated Latino role models. So I'm advocating on behalf of the Latino business community and entrepreneurs like myself to benefit the youth that need the role models. And also because these entrepreneurs that I have found, that I have spotlighted in my book, they are challenging the industrial status quo and they're very courageous, and I just really want their stories to be told and to be seen widely. Are you suggesting that they themselves are not marketing themselves adequately? They meaning the the Latino uh, entrepreneurs? For the most part, I would say yes. There are some exceptions to that, exceptions, but everybody's super busy, and not everybody has that skill. And there's a lot of cultural tendency to think that you should not promote yourself. 
that's something I discovered as well. And a lot of times people just think, well, let me just do what I'm doing and and I'll I'll do it really well and people will notice. Well, that only gets you so far. But I'm speaking in the collective, Arlene, in the collective. They might be individually marketing themselves well to their customer base, obviously to grow their business. But to shine, to be shining examples of success, to be seen nationally so that people understand the powerful, important economic contributions coming from uh, Latino entrepreneurs and business owners, that is what's missing in the equation. And that is really my big push. For example, did you know that there's the latest U.S. Census figures showed that the growth of Hispanic-owned businesses is double the national average? Double. So if Americans in general are starting businesses at you know 18% growth rate in a five-year period, Hispanic-owned businesses grew at twice that. That's a story you just don't see covered in the media. And did you know there's 750,000 small businesses owned by Latinas? Three quarters of a million. Huge. But I, but I think Grace that we all. I mean, I own a small business. You own a small business. I think that everyone who owns a small business needs to learn how to promote them. Now, culturally. I can believe that people might learn that it's not appropriate to do what's referred to as bragging and boasting. Mm-hmm. I remember a client of mine uh, that I was working with, and it was a prestigious medical facility, mm-hmm. and they made a point of saying, you know, that they they didn't want candidates who would be bragging and boasting. Mm-hmm. Well, the point is we all need to market ourselves, whether yes. we're individuals searching for a new position and need to present ourselves as the one right fit at an interview. Mm-hmm. We have to broadcast. Right. So I think that in the school systems, children are not taught how to do that. And I think that's something that needs to be taught for everyone from a very early age, how to basically pitch yourself. Exactly. And uh, that's why the storytellers that I selected for Win Without Competing, all of them are talented in terms of broadcasting themselves. You, Helen, who's going to be coming up shortly, Jason Marino, whom I mentioned, mm-hmm. all of them are able to do that. So what I'm suggesting is it's not just um, something that's important for uh, the Latino community, mm-hmm. but I think it's important for everyone. And Agreed. I remember when I spoke with your son the other night. Mm-hmm. He was four years old. At four years old... He already has the capability to present himself at that young age. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that has to do with the environment at home. What do you think? That the conversation at home, he's very confident, he's very articulate. It is. It has a lot to do with that. You're right. 
we've um we've adopted a little tradition that I want to share with you. It's um it's something that uh President Obama and his family does. It's the sharing around the dinner table of the roses and thorns. And what they do and I read a little children's book about the first family, this is how I know this. What they do is around the dinner table they take turns sharing the rose of the day and the thorn of the day. So each person gets a chance to share something happy and, you know, something not so great that they want to complain about, but they need to be heard is the idea. So we've adopted that tradition, and so we just go around the table and we say, okay, Kiyoshi, my son, share your rose and share your thorn. And what's so funny is when you give children a platform for speaking their thoughts and their ideas, guess what they do? <laughs> they share. They talk. They converse. And he's been known to say, oh, wait, wait, wait. Uh, my third rose is when my friend gave me his toy truck to play with and I didn't even ask or whatever. But it's that place where it's his turn to talk. He gets heard. He knows his ideas matter. And he just builds up confidence evening after evening in articulating himself. So it is no accident that uh, that he is that way. He he has ample opportunity, and given that opportunity, he seized it. And my other my older daughters are the same way. I mean, he was just fantastic. I mean, I I couldn't believe it how articulate he is. Yep. Well, it he sounds like he wanted out to talk to you. <laughs> he did. He, I know he couldn't wait, and then he didn't want to get off the phone after he was after we started chatting. Exactly. I think that you're really doing a wonderful thing by adopting this approach at you know at dinner. Going further, you brought up your book, um, Latinovating: Green American Jobs and Latinos Creating Them. Mm-hmm. Now, this came about from an article which you wrote while you were working at Siemens. Tell us about what you learned from the article that basically generated the seed to create Latinovating. So while I was working there, I got a phone call from one of the editors at uh, one of the magazines that I've been writing for, and I was in a green enterprise role with the, uh, the German company. So I was involved in corporate sustainability and um, initiatives for energy efficiency and uh, reducing resources, et cetera. So when I got this phone call, I had been wondering, okay, so in Europe this really matters, and it looks like the word green and economy is starting to seriously be addressed in the U.S. So the question that I had was, what if any role does the um, Hispanic community, business community, play in this? Um, is this green economy wave going to sweep up a lot of uh, people into successful businesses, or is it going to pass pass us by? Just a question. I didn't have any idea. But when I suggested that a feature article to explore that question might be a good idea, he encouraged me to do this. The editor did. So what I learned as a result of going out to find these folks is I really feel like I discovered the tip of the iceberg of um, Latinos motivated by familial lessons to preserve, conserve, and reuse instilled in them as it was in me 
I found that there are so many people honoring those core values as innovative business people and entrepreneurs. And when I found one person, suddenly they knew two or three others, and so on and so on. And so in the article, I was only able to spotlight, I think, a dozen people. But I realized that there was a lot of stories coming out about culture, about culture clashes with industrial status quo practices. And I thought it would be a really good idea to go back and explore that and see what the collective story might look like. And that's how the article inspired the book. Now, the book is going to be published in May. How can people uh, buy the book beforehand? So we are now, I think, two and a half months from the launch at Stanford, which will occur on May 14th. We are in the um, pre-order phase. So the best way to find the book is to go to www.latinovating, and that's the word innovating with L-A-T-I, L-A-T in front of it. So innovating with L-A-T in front of it, and it's just Latino and innovating put together. I'm introducing a new word into the English language, and that's what it is. So L-A-T-I-N-N-O-V-A-T-I-N-G.com. And to contact me, there is a web form on there to be notified about book launch activities and speaking engagements and signings around the country. So anybody that orders a copy before March 7th, Arlene, will actually be able to be included in the exclusive list of early supporters that is going to be printed in the book. And March 7th is the last day to pre-order at a 20% discount ahead of the printing and be included in that list of early supporters. And after March 7th, it's off to the printer. Well, I want to thank you, Grace, for inviting me to write a quote. And uh, as we speak, I'm busy working on the quote. Well, I look forward to seeing it. Thank you. Now, you're also an advocate for children with disabilities. How did you become involved in this? So this came about in a very different way, and this came about through fate. Our first daughter, Milagro, was born weighing one pound, two ounces at 25 weeks gestation. So super tiny micropremie, as they call them. And consequently, she is blind. She sees only light and shadows, and she also has a hearing impairment that affects her speech development. So to ensure that her educational needs would be met, my husband and I, knowing nothing about disability, you know, keep in mind I was flying airplanes for the Air Force before this happened, so I knew nothing about blindness and nothing about education of kids with visual impairments. Um, we took a special education law training when she was two, long before she started preschool. And this training, Arlene, um, it, it brought us a whole new body of knowledge um, because our daughter needed us to have it. And the reason it's important is school district personnel and educators do not know how to educate a child with dual sensory disabilities. This is just not what they're trained for. It's not widely available knowledge. So as parents, we learned what the federal laws were that were in place to guarantee her a free and appropriate education is what the law says. And we've built up an excellent education team for her. And today, as a second grader, I'm proud to tell you, 
She reads and writes in Braille, and she is frequently heard exclaiming, I love Braille books, Mama, or I'm a very good writer and speller, because she is. So that is how we got into it. We had a child that um, really required us to go learn what we didn't know. And what happens when you know that is other parents who don't know that, who are struggling to get the services for their child, they come to you. And so informed parent-led advocacy is really, really important to get a child with a physical disability or a learning disability what they need because, again, this is not common knowledge in school districts. So that is how it came about, and parents started coming to us. And then when I had the the time, you know, when I was forming my company, this became one of the two ventures that I wanted to pursue because I know the need is certainly there. And um, so I do seminars for parents to teach them the basics in education uh, disability law. And I also consult independently with families and go into the individual education planning meetings with the school district officials so that the child wins and the child gets their services and the child gets an education. And it's extremely gratifying work. You're very busy advocating, Grace. I am, and I love it. It's, like I said, there's it's very, very gratifying work because... In the uh, special education side, you see that the child suddenly has a program that is going to result in actual achievement of goals that are important to the family and to the child. And then only that, but then you see in the school district and the school, now the educators understand what is required. And so it sets the stage for all the other children coming behind that child. And it's very, very gratifying. And on the other side... Um, when I can present these stories in the book, as I just did in Texas at the business school, when you can present these stories of environmental entrepreneurship to business students who are going to be in the business world in a couple of months or in a couple of years, and you see their eyes light up with possibility of examples they never knew existed or um, industrial uh, changes happening Uh, toward the more sustainable, eco-friendly economy, when you see that because you bring those stories to them, that is also very, very gratifying. In Win Without Competing, I talk about the need for divergent thinking, which is essential to creativity. How does divergent thinking help you in identifying opportunities to pursue? That is a great question. Well, I think, first of all, one of the most important things that you can do to identify opportunities is to intentionally go out and find them. So I am definitely always taking the initiative to go find out where there are needs. I never stop meeting people. I never stop networking. And I never stop asking questions. So I'm just very naturally and forever curious. Um, And because I like to create solutions and content and stories to inspire and motivate, that just is a good fit for me. I think what's, what's unique is the ability to kind of see far out into the future of if this is created, what can happen as a result? And, and what is it that is missing today? That, that kind of thinking. And as an example, 
when our daughter Milagro was very young and we started going to the first conferences in the disability community, we realized very quickly that what we as parents needed, which was photos, videos of blind babies and do they walk, do they crawl, how do they learn to do those things since they're not imitating, there was nothing like that out there. There There are stories in books written by professors, but we wanted to see real families, real babies, what do we do, and in those early years when parents tended to spare, we didn't find it. We wanted multimedia content and video of how babies learn to walk and crawl and when they don't see. So what did we do? We said, well, what if we created one? So when Milagro was just wrapping up preschool, we created Letting Your Child's Wild Side Out. It's a DVD. And we've shipped this DVD that takes the viewer from infancy to downhill skiing for a five-year-old in about 30 minutes. It's the case study that everybody wishes they had seen when they were raising their baby. We decided to create it because there was a need. And consequently, we have shipped this DVD to over 100 different agencies around the world, serving children with visual impairments. So that is a very concrete example of seeing this doesn't exist. And why do we see it? Because we were at conferences. We're asking questions. And then what if we created it? What would that look like? And then being able to have my husband, who is my technical support guy, the creativity that we bring together, that's how this is possible. But you're right. You have to be able to think it through. And well, you have to be able to need. think divergently. You have yeah, to be able to see the possibility. Most exactly. people, or I should, I would, maybe not most people, but generally people tend to think convergently. Mm-hmm. They tend to think about a single solution rather than many solutions to right. a, a particular situation. Right. And to be creative, you have to have many solutions to a particular uh, problem that you want to solve right? or challenge in the words of the Kennedys. I know mm-hmm. that I grew up in Brookline, Massachusetts, the birthplace of John F. Kennedy, mm-hmm. and their motto was always, we don't have problems, we have challenges. Challenges, exactly. Yeah, so I grew up with that that concept yeah. of the challenges. And so solutions for these challenges uh, require divergent thinking. They do. And I'll say this, that raising your first child as a blind baby, that would be a challenge. <laughs> so, yeah, you're right. That that fits. Well, it sounds like you and your husband, though, were prepared for this challenge and handled it in a way to make it easier for other people who perhaps don't have your capability to formulate the solutions. Well, I can tell you that it's made it easier for parents to to do two different things. The first thing that they do when they see it is they go, okay, first of all, I'm not alone. Other people have raised blind children, which sounds kind of odd, but that's kind of where you are when you're a parent. So seeing that it's been done before and then really seeing these different stages of the child's life, they they have hope. They have hope that their six-month-old will one day walk or one day do gymnastics 
or swim as we show. And so it gives them that, that, um, that ability to have hope. And the second thing that's very important that we give them is the ability to not be overprotective because when you're raising a child that doesn't see, not only is a parental instinct to be protective, but it's parental instinct to be overprotective. Plus, you might have the family and the community encouraging that behavior too. So when you can see a family raise a child and let the child do gymnastics and swimming and downhill skiing and let her do somersaults and all the things that we show, that gives them permission to just let their child be a child because they're seeing with their own eyes what we didn't get a chance to see when we were raising her, and that is examples of what is possible. And I think that's kind of a theme, isn't it? I just said that same phrase with my book, is let me show you what's possible. Let me show you success stories. I think that's really what I'm doing with the advocacy of both of these communities. Grace, you are a win-without-competing woman. You set the standard. I want to congratulate you on your awards, more than one, for Entrepreneur of the Year. I wish you much success in all your entrepreneurial pursuits. Thank you for joining me today on Win Without Competing. Always a pleasure, Arlene. Thank you. Thank you. Helen Hurst, now Dr. Helen Hurst, is the storyteller star of Chapter 14, The Right Fit and Approach to Life. Helen, at age 17, met Mike, a handsome pilot who was 35 and married. She was British. He was American. He lived in one country and she in another. How did they ever get married? We'll find out soon. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Helen Hurst, who holds an endowed professorship in nursing at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Welcome, Helen, to Win Without Competing. Nice to meet you, Arlene. My pleasure, Helen. We met at a nurse educator conference in New York City. When you shared your special story, I knew that you were the right fit storyteller for my book. When you met Mike, you immediately decided he was the right fit for you. How did you know that, Helen? I think it's, you know, you see all these movies and everything that say to you, oh, you know, you're going to find that one moment um, of this person that's just going to come into your life. And I think uh, when I met him, I think over and over again, looking back over the years now, it's always been that when I met him and was with him, I was just myself. I didn't have to be somebody else. I didn't have to pretend to be somebody that I wasn't. We just met and we just clicked and we enjoyed each other's company and it just worked and there was just no effort involved. You are only 17, and I know that he was actually the first man you ever dated. Did you, when you were growing up, think about the kind of man you would like to marry? Did you have what I would call a blueprint of the right-fit husband? 
nothing specifically in my mind because I think I was I was so young and um you know I think at the time in in the culture I grew up in in England you know at that time 16 17 years old most people didn't have boyfriends didn't have girlfriends whatever but just knew that I I wanted to grow grow up and marry someone who was who I could have fun with and who would help me be successful and he would be successful and we would just grow old together. I, I think really that was the basic. There was really, you know, no specific personality type or anything like that. That just, you know, I wanted to grow up, meet someone who I would love and that we would have a great time together and that we would just be together forever. Well, when you met Mike, you decided that that was the person. What's interesting is that you grew up in a small Village, am I correct, mm-hmm. Helen? That's correct. And uh, I know when we talked prior to the show, I've referred to you as a country bumpkin. <laughs> That's correct. And so, yes, I mean, a country bumpkin in the sense that he was a worldly man. That's correct. And you were basically someone who really lived in a... What was the size of the village? Oh, my goodness, I don't know, maybe... I don't even know. Uh, looking back now, probably maybe 5,000 people. I'm, I'm really yeah. not sure, but probably about that. Um, you know, I had been so overseas a lot. You were a country you know. bumpkin Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah you really travel, were. I mean, but, uh, you weren't but, uh, exactly you know. a London a London socialite no, at that not age. not at all. Not at yes. all, no. Well, that even makes our story more interesting. Share your romantic adventures with Mike and tell us what role your diaries played. Well, um, obviously when we first met, I was 17 years old, and I met this guy at the pool one weekend and had absolutely no idea that he was so much older than me. And, um, you know, we were 17, we met that summer, whatever, and we decided we would start, you know, we would write to each other, which to some people might kind of seem like, oh, my goodness, you know, what was she thinking and what was he thinking? Um, so we just kind of started writing to each other, and pretty much we wrote every day. And um, I started writing this diary. I guess this was exciting to me. You know, we weren't dating or doing anything like that. We just knew each other. And, um, you know, I guess at that time I was really kind of swept up and so really started writing. So from the time then when we first met till the time we ultimately got married, I started writing a diary. So I had these two massive diaries from the time when we met in uh, when I was 17 and we got married when I was two days away from being 21 that I had kept all this time. What I think is interesting is that over a three-year period, you only saw each other three times. That's correct. Once in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Once in Amsterdam, mm-hmm. once in England. That's correct. What basically helped the relationship to evolve was not obviously the in-person meetings. It was the letter writing. I Absolutely. mean, it's fascinating. It is. I think you you know you kind of go back to the time of you know way back before we had email and all that kind of stuff when people really did write letters to each other. You know we've lost that art, and I think it's a way you probably learn and we probably learned much more about each other through communicating that way than we would have going on a date every Friday and Saturday night. You know you you know it's much easier to say things that you really feel in a letter when someone's not sitting there in person to immediately respond to you or to judge you or to 
um, you know, have any kind of reaction you might expect or not expect, I think it's much easier. And, and I think for that reason, we probably knew more about each other by the time we got married than many people who had been dating, living in the same town for three years. Did you always believe that Mike would divorce his wife? Oh, absolutely, because, um, you know, I mean, when we first met, they were they were not together. Um, you know, they had been separated on and off, and they were separated at the time when we met. So, um, you know, I just always believed. I just knew he was the one. And, um, you know, there was just never a question in my mind. It was just always a question of when, which I think my friends and family sometimes thought was a little crazy. But, but, that, but I think it's very interesting that your parents, though, were, I guess, surprised supportive in the sense that they didn't call a halt to it. Is that a correct assessment of the situation? I think so, and and I think, Arlene, it's like how, called a halt to what? We weren't seeing each other and we were just writing letters. That's so I true. Think, you know, <laughs> I think it was kind of like it would have been hard, what you, you, you know, I mean, it, you know, it's just not the same. So I think in, in their minds, I think they um, – you know, I think they thought, well, you know, this is going to run its course because she's never going to see him. She might get tired of him. Not that they didn't like him, but the fact that he was a lot older than me, I think, was, um, you know, re- you know, certainly an issue. And, uh, you know, I think they, you know, they thought, oh, it's a phase. It'll pass. You know. <laughs> well, of course, it didn't pass. I mean, no, it didn't we pass. Know we, you, you mm-hmm. obviously did get married. Mm-hmm. How did the marriage ultimately come about? Um, we had, um, of course, you know, communicated back and forward and seen each other a couple of times, and it was always a case, you know, well, when are you going to be ready to, you know, when are you going to be ready to to make that step to get divorced, whatever. And uh, I went on an exchange program from my university in England to a university in Pennsylvania. So I actually came over to the United States, and I came over in the August of uh, 1985. And in the October of, uh, you know, uh, that year, um, I get some flowers at, at my university that says, I did it, you know, and, and then he calls me and tells me, you know, I have filed, I've finally, you know, filed for divorce and everything. And I, and I think some people might say, oh, my God, she's just a crazy homewrecker kind of thing, you know. I think that's always in somebody's mind, but, you know, without knowing the whole background, that they really, you know, had had problems for many, many years, and it was a very on and off, you know, relationship because he was married when he was 16 the first time. So, um it was never a very stable thing. Um, so that was kind of how we ended up, and um, we, we kept, um, we got an engagement ring and everything, and my, we met all my family up in Canada for Christmas that year. And um, he wrote a letter. Here's where the letter's coming again. He actually wrote my dad a letter that he handed to him personally to ask if it was okay to marry me. Um, so, again, that whole letter thing just seems to have been a theme throughout the, the whole time here. But how and beautiful the, that is. Really? I mean, when you think about it. Oh, absolutely. And you know, that's the one letter I don't have. I don't know whatever happened to that letter. You know, did my parents keep it? I don't know. I guess, I don't know. Well, you should ask them because um, I know you've kept all these letters. You told me in your nightstand. I mean, you obviously have thousands of letters over a three-year period. Mm -hmm. I have a lot. It's It's a very large stack. And I have an idea for those letters, but I'm going to share that a little bit later as we continue um, speaking. Now, when I met you in New York City, you were married to Mike for more than 20 years. 
Mm-hmm. You had two children. Correct. Today, those children are 21 and 16. That's correct. Then you had many pets, apparently now only one, a cat. Yes. At that time, Mike was your fourth priority, which is frankly what our readers remember, that Mm -hmm. Mike was your fourth priority. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What happened to this glorious romance? I think it's the same thing that happens to many marriages, Arlene. You know, you get so involved in taking care of your children and taking care of your job because we are all multi, you know, like um, your previous guest was talking about multitasking and maybe doing lots of things but not very well and trying to keep your head above water and, and getting the kids to school and taking them to soccer practice or whatever and then, you know, being involved in your careers and everything. And, you know, I think... um we had a very sick cat at the time. One of the cats was very sick at, at some point. And, um, you know, my husband would say to me, I, you know, I'd be very frustrated and say, you know, I am the last person in the line. You care about the kids and the cat more than you care about me. And and I think it, not so much in, it was that, that I really didn't care, but here was this man who loved me and was so devoted to me and we were so devoted to each other. We knew that no matter what we did, we were still going to be there for each other. So it was very easy to not pay attention to the marriage part of being married. Everything else to priority, and he was absolutely right. I gave you some advice. You, you did. were getting ready to go on a cruise. That's correct. Okay, share with us the advice that I gave you about your diaries. You suggested that I give them to Mike as a gift when we were on the cruise, because the cruise was over Christmas. And that you wrapped them very nicely. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that had to do with the fact that you had never shared them with him. Correct. And that's something, I guess, that he wanted to read. Am I correct, Helen? I don't know. You know, I'm not sure that he even really had. I mean, he knew I wrote a diary, but I don't think he realized the extent to what it had gone, to what it had become. But he did see it as something that you kept private and to yourself. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Okay. And I'm going to read from my book. Mm-hmm. It's called The Encore, We Bring You Back. Uh-huh. And this is a note that you mm-hmm. emailed to me, and it mm-hmm. says... Are you not going to make me cry again like you did the other day, are you? Yeah, well, I don't know, Helen. You cry at a drop of the hat. You're a true romantic, Helen. If you cry, that's fine. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. Well, we went on our cruise, and Arlene, I followed through with your suggestion to give Mike the diaries as a gift. Each day on the ship, I'd put it off. I couldn't find the right time. I mean, this was like giving away a piece of my soul. No one but me had ever seen them. But on our last night, I gave them to him, wrapped in a single box. When he opened the diaries, he was stunned. He said he was truly speechless and didn't know what to say. He was overwhelmed and couldn't believe I would give to him something so personal. He said it was as though I was giving him a piece of my soul. We were both tearful, and it brought brought us back to how strong our emotions were before we were married. Marriages work, everyone agrees, but sometimes we have to sit back and realize how it all started. 
I know Mike and I would do it all over again. We just need to remember that and to keep in mind that we were a perfect fit long ago and we remain the right fit today. Helen, are you crying? A little bit, but not as bad as I was the other day because it was a long time since I had, I mean, I had not reread that email, you know, since the book came out. True. Kind of like, uh, and with everything currently going on, you know, um, with my husband having prostate cancer, it just really kind of brings it home, you know, that you have to, you always have to look to where you started and the good things that really brought you together and I can honestly say in the now about to be 25 years that we've been married there has never even been one time where I have said I wish we weren't together I question why we're together or anything like that and I think unfortunately a lot of people can't say that well that's true Um, to what extent would you say you're able to recall what had occurred on the cruise to remind yourself of the importance of keeping him in the top, shall we say, two priorities, Helen. <laughs> I don't know if it was any one thing in particular. You know, the, the, the whole issue of deciding when to give it was, uh, again, you know, you you write all these feelings that you had so long ago when you were basically, you know, you weren't even twenty years old, you know. And how how is someone going to read that and take that, you know? And I, I think it was just a case of me just putting it off till the last possible minute. Right. But that boy saying, Ar- Arlene, I told Arlene I was going to do this. Oh, I know? knew you would do it, Helen. I knew it because I you knew that I would hold you accountable. Oh, absolutely, Helen. absolutely. Well, because I wanted to write about it in the book, and I mm-hmm. thought, and I also wanted to help you because yeah. I knew that you could bring back all those beautiful memories. And what I think is interesting, what you shared before the show when you did cry more, mm-hmm. is that. He waited a long time before he actually read those diaries. Yes, he did. I think, yeah, I think that's interesting. Maybe it was difficult for him to go back in time and to experience that strong emotion oh, that you so. shared so many years ago. Oh, I think so. And. You know, I, I I do think, you know, and I think every marriage experiences this, you know, as you get further and further away from the excitement of what it was when you were first together, I think it's very easy to to forget how strong those emotions were. You still have strong emotions, but they're in a different way. Now, he finally read the diaries, mm-hmm. but he never commented, which I also thought was rather interesting. Yes, he really never said too much about them other than you know it it was wonderful that that I gave them to him and um but we never really talked about it and 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 I think that's a good thing I don't think it was something that needed to be talked about it was you know let's just go back and remember where we were and for him to see really what was going on with me in that time even though I was writing letters but this was really the you know the real stuff that I was thinking and feeling at the time and may not have been exactly what came across in the letters to him. Um, you know I I don't think it, uh, I would have been very uncomfortable sitting discussing it because it was something you know it was about my life and what happened and 
And I don't think that need. I don't think there's any discussion needed in that. You just need to read it and you know feel it and 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 you know kind of experience it. Now, what's interesting regarding the letters, Helen, uh-huh. is that you kept all the letters that he sent you. Correct. But he doesn't have the letters that you sent yes. him, which is not making you happy. No, I don't know that it doesn't make me happy. I always kind of joked with him about it, but I I certainly have no resentment towards him. To, you know, I mean, men don't keep that with those kind of things, I don't think. Well... What would you, if he had kept them, would mm-hmm. you have wanted to read them today? No, absolutely not. <laughs> oh, you wouldn't want to read them? No, I really wouldn't. I really wouldn't. You know, I, I think when you write something, you know, uh, something very personal like that to someone else, um, you know, and I'm sure at times I was not, it was all, all, all flowers and roses, and I'm sure I didn't, you know, say nice things all the time either. I, I think, you know, I think when that time has passed to go back and, you know, I wrote those letters to him. I don't, I, I, it's not something that I would want to go back and say, okay, well, let, let me kind of revisit what I was thinking when I wrote that letter. I, you know, I, you know, the time has passed, and, and that's good. I like, you know, I mean, like I said, it's probably been 15 years since I've, even pulled these letters out of my bedside cabinet, the ones that he wrote me. It's one thing for me to read that, but I I really wouldn't want to read what I wrote to him. Okay. What I'm thinking about is, because I'd love a follow-up to this, (laughs) and that has to do with the letters that you have stored in your nightstand. That's correct. And, of course, there are thousands. I mean, you're you're going to be going on a cruise mm-hmm. to celebrate your 25th anniversary. That's correct. And I think it would be fabulous to wrap those letters up as a gift and give them to him to read because that will help him recollect his feelings for you. Well, that's a very same. interesting idea. Yes. I don't think same. I could take them all, though. Oh, that's too much to carry, it's probably. too much to carry, and Lord knows we've got so many things planned, I don't think he'd have time to read them all. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, but I guess, well, I don't know, selecting them, I guess, would be time-consuming. I guess you're going to have to dig random your hand bunch. in and random, yeah. a random bunch yeah. of them. Yeah, it, it course, sort of... The begin, some from the top of the pile, some from the middle of the pile, and some from the bottom. Because they're all right, in order. Right. That's it. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. that would be very interesting. Because, I think it would. Yeah, because think about it. What he read, in terms of what you wrote in your diary, I mean, mm-hmm. that's basically kind of the equivalent of mm-hmm. what you're going to be doing for him, in essence. Yes. You're sharing, mm-hmm. you shared your mm-hmm. feelings. Now you're going to give him what he wrote. Exactly. Yeah, I think it would be good, and then we can have you report back, Helen. (laughs) Yes, I love this idea of reporting back, and uh, so that our listeners can be looking forward to hearing about that. Now, you mentioned that Mike recently had a a cancer diagnosis, and I know you, you told me he's doing well. Yes, he is. Good, and um, obviously things are going well in the marriage from what Mm -hmm. you had described. Yes. And, in fact, 
Mike is going to be getting a Lifetime Achievement Award. Tell us about that. Yes. Um, he has been in the helicopter industry um, as a pilot and as an executive and a, a safety proponent uh, for 40 years now and, um, in Orlando um, over what we in Louisiana would call Mardi Gras. <laughs> uh, he is um, going to receive the... Um, HAI uh, Bell Helicopter Lifetime Achievement Award for um, aviation, which is a, a very, very huge honor and much deserved, absolutely much deserved. I'm very proud of him. And you also have received a number of awards. In essence, you've both had, you know, both distinguished yourself in your careers. Tell us a bit about your awards, Helen. Um well, uh, after I received my doctorate, I, I received an endowed professorship in nursing, which is always uh, great to be um, recognized by your, your university institution and the um, the surrounding facilities that support these endowed professorships. And um, I was also named as one of um, the um, Louisiana State Nurses Association 25 Best Nurses in Acadiana, and Acadiana is a seven-parish or county region in south-central Louisiana. Um, um, that was really great. I was nominated for a, a National um, Teaching Excellence Award, um, and uh, it just, you know, this, things just kind of, you know, things that you don't expect, that, you know, you go about and do your job and, and love what you do and have a passion for what you do, and and these accolades come, and you go, well, really? Did I? What did I really do to deserve that? Because I was just enjoying my job and enjoying what I do, you know. Um, so it's really great. I'm, I'm very, very grateful for for all those things to have happened to me. How have you learned to balance your professional and personal lives? Because it hasn't been easy with two children, mm-hmm. uh, both of you very busy with your careers. What kind of advice would you have for our listeners? I think you have to have a, you know, it's been very hard for me because being from England, when we got married, we moved to the United States, so all my family has always lived in England, although my parents do come visit us, uh, you know, very frequently. You you have to have a, a, a kind of a network of people, and I say that in a way that I have a very, very close-knit group of friends, and, and everybody kind of has a different role. You know, you have your friends that you had when you were younger that are still together that you all helped babysitting with each other's kids. And then you have the ones who who are there for your emotional well-being, which has which has been really important for me in 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 going through all this with the, with the the cancer diagnosis and that you know I you know my family is not here. I have my very close friends, um, but to be able to have the people who you can go to and and just absolutely fall apart with, and it's okay, and then you come back home and life is good, you know. Um, so I think you have to kind of almost have a little nest of, of these different people that support you in the different things that you do. Uh, and then you have your 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 work colleagues that are supporting you and encouraging you in your work environment. And I'm real lucky in the fact that many of the people who I actually work with as my colleagues or some of my little nest are very close friends too. So I'm just very, very lucky in that regard. But you cannot isolate yourself, but you can't put all your eggs in one basket either. You know, sometimes it's, it, it's um, you know, down here in South Louisiana, everybody is very close family-oriented to the point where it feels like everybody's on top of each other, which is very alien to me. Um, 
you know, I, I really like my my little my little nests of people that I have, and and that has worked really well for us to be able to um to be able to do the things we need to do and to raise our children and to be able to work and to be able to succeed. I believe at both things. When I was interviewing Grace, she talked about how she scheduled her day. Mm-hmm. Do you have any tips for that, Helen? Because I know you've got a lot going on, as Grace does. I am, but I will tell you I am the world's greatest procrastinator. And my best work is done at the last minute. So I have no great tips as far as organization. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everybody says, well, you, might, you know, do I make a little to-do list when I get into my office on the morning? I absolutely do in my mind. I know what I have planned for the day, but I am not, my desk is a mess. I am not an organized person. I am very much, um, you know, switch from one thing to the other, and that works for me. And, again, I very much am um, I'm a procrastinator. I have been like that since I was in high school. If there was a test, I will study like heck for the last four hours before the test the night before when I have article deadlines for magazines or the editorial boards that I am on, the journals that I'm on. You know, if you tell me it's due on the 25th, you're getting it on the 25th. You know, it is not going to be done a week before. Don't ask me for it to be, you know, don't give me a deadline and be calling me the week before to see it's right. It's just not going to happen. And that works for me. You know, it's almost like I work better under pressure. Well, I think it's interesting because Helen, you have one approach Mm -hmm. and Grace has another, Mm -hmm. and both of you are very successful. Uh So hopefully our readers can match up to Uh either of you. Uh I mean, not our readers, our listeners can match Mm -hmm. up to either of you. And also I expect that... There are some listeners that would be in between. Probably so. And yeah. kind of funny it was, Mike was, uh, before I came in uh, to do the interview, he's sitting on the couch and, he, and at this convention we're going to where he's receiving his award, he said, you know, I have a presentation to do. He said, I haven't worked on that yet. I'll probably do it this week sometime. <laughs> well, he's planning ahead. But I think he has that little bit of the procrastinative personality too. You know, we're kind of right up down to the wire here, but he still hasn't oh, done oh, his he presentation. Does that. Oh, he does that too. Oh, ab- ah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I guess, let's see, the date of the award is March what? I believe it's March 7th, Monday, March 7th. Oh, I guess that isn't too far ahead then, <laughs> No, absolutely not. Well, let's hope that he's busy thinking about it so that he does an outstanding job. No, and he will, without question. There is no doubt in my mind about that. Good. Now, if our listeners wanted to email you at the university, mm-hmm. if for some reason they needed more information, for mm-hmm. example, uh, given that you're very successful in your nursing profession mm-hmm. and they wanted more information about that, for example, how uh-huh. could they email you? They could email me at Helen Hurst, H-E-L-E-N-H-U-R-S-T, at Louisiana, the state's name spelled out in full, dot E-D-U. So Helen Hurst at Louisiana dot E-D-U. Well, I want to thank you, Helen, for joining me today. You are a win-without-competing woman. You set the standard. I wish you continued professional and personal success. 
Thank you so much for having me, Arlene. It was great to chat with you. It was my pleasure. To contact me directly about your career or business coaching needs or to ask me to speak, call 310-441-5305. That's 310-441-5305. I'm based in Los Angeles. To learn more about the Right Fit Method and my book, Win Without Competing, nominated for a Business Book Award, visit winwithoutcompeting.com. To buy the book, go online to Amazon, Borders, and Barnes & Noble. To listen to more than 55 radio shows on Blog Talk Radio, go to drbarrow.com. That's drbarrow.com. For information about my company, Barrow Global Search, Inc., visit barrowglobal.com. B-A-R-R-O-G-L-O-B-A-L.com. Repeat this trigger tip to yourself. My professional and personal success is in my hands. Use this tip to remember to manage the process. Goodbye for now. And thank you for listening to Win Without Competing. This is Dr. Arlene. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.